Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, let's get to it. Praise the Lord for all he's doing. Touching bodies, changing lives, good things are happening. Celebrated two baptisms on Sunday. Wonderful, isn't it? We got to experience that together. And uh, you need to ask those who are baptized a little bit about their backstory. There's some good stuff. And I don't think Sandra got to mention it, but she uh, one of the reasons she came to church here was because she received bread at Bread of Life Outreach. So that connection is really important. Bread sown, right? All right, let's uh, let's take a look at David tonight. Uh, David, a problematic patriarch, is the title. He's problematic. He's got problems in the family, doesn't he? We're going to look at some of that, and I don't know how far we can get into this, but uh, we left off last time with David and Bathsheba, and uh, boy, that's a that's a mess. And the statement that because David's of David's sin, there would be constant turmoil in his house. So up to this point, we have. Uh, David the giant slayer, um, you could call him the shepherd boy prior to that. Uh, then he's David the worshiper, he plays the harp and Saul calms down most of the time, uh, except when he's throwing spears. And then you have David the refugee who's on the run, uh, and eventually David the king, and then last week David the sinner. And it kind of catches us out of nowhere. If we're not, if we didn't know the story already, we would have been caught off guard because everything up to that point is really positive concerning David. But tonight, the, David is uh, the problematic patriarch. After his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, uh, David received a visit from Nathan the prophet, and um, he was told that the consequence of his sin would be that uh, what they would be, and he himself would not die, but trouble would come to his house because of his sin. So uh, in chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, it says, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did not, you, what you did in secret, you did that in secret, but I will do uh, this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. So I want to talk about three things tonight related to this. Uh, David, the, the things that uh, had an impact on David's family. First of all, uh, David set the wrong kind of example, number one. Number two, I think David uh, didn't get involved when he should have gotten involved. Number three, uh, David was also experienced the repercussion of sin in God's personal judgment upon him. And so let's talk about these things tonight. What I want to do is read a little bit into this story, not read into it like we're reading our own ideas into it. You know the difference there. We're going to read, we're going to read in uh, the story and figure out what's going on here, and we'll have to cover a lot of territory, so we won't read everything, but I would encourage you to go back and read it. We're not trying to skip anything except for, for the sake of time to hit on the highlights. Otherwise, we could be here for three hours. All right. And that might be nice, right, for some. 
The first thing I want to mention is that David sets the wrong kind of example. All right, we're going to come into our, our reading in just a moment. We read uh, chapter 12, verse 10, and the punishment. And I think it started with a violation of a passage in Deuteronomy. Okay, so uh, this Deuteronomy passage, he had taken many wives, eight to be exact. And God says in Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen, what does it say there? Anybody know? Well, it doesn't quite say that. It says something like that. We could infer that from that, but... Yeah, not to have many wives, okay? David has eight, and uh, this uh, sets a certain kind of example for Israel and for himself. He had, he had taken many wives, and God said there that the king should not have many wives or that they would lead the king's heart astray. Uh, this is a perfect text, Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen for Solomon, isn't it? Right? That it led his heart astray. We see that played out. Uh, what you'll find in Scripture um, is that almost every instance where polygamy is mentioned, uh, there's some kind of complication. You can see it, uh, some would say that with Abraham and Hagar, that at least it was momentary polygamy. And then uh, Jacob, of course, there's complications in his life, aren't there? What are some of the complications that were there? Lots of them, right? What were they? Go ahead, Dean. Okay, enmity. But what about, uh, oh, between the brothers that were sons of Jacob? Is that what you meant? Okay. Okay, what about uh, the sisters? Yeah. There was jealousies. And not only that, but wasn't there even kind of a misunderstanding about God that came from that? Do you remember Leah's, like, um, maybe it was Rachel that says that God has, God doesn't, hasn't shown favor to me. It was a misunderstanding of her, of uh, God's love for her, and there was there was conflict that was there, and there was theological interpretations of why things were happening. and And poor Jacob, I, I don't know what to call him, poor or not, but he was probably driven mad by all of this that was going on. And we see it uh, we see it with Elkanah. Who's Elkanah? Anybody know? Hannah's husband, right? And what's uh, Elkanah's wife's name's Hannah and Penina? Is that right? I don't know if that's proper Hebrew pronunciation or not. But there was there was misunderstanding there between her and the Lord and, and jealousies that took place there. Um, and then we have David and, of course, Solomon. When you look at David's sons, look at um, who they are. I, I don't have it on the screen here, but if you think about it, I think there was... There's um, 19 that are mentioned by name, and then it says at the end of one list of these 19, uh, a bunch of unnamed sons by concubines. David's sons were, uh, anybody know the oldest? Anybody know this list from memory? (laughs) Absalom's on the list. Okay. Yes. I had to think about that. I call him Adonijah, but... I don't know if I'm saying it right or you're saying it right. It doesn't matter. We're probably both saying it wrong. Who knows? Okay, Adonijah. Who's the, who's the oldest? It's not Absalom. It's Amnon. Amnon is the oldest. Absalom is not even second. He's the third. The second one is uh, named Daniel. And so uh, Amnon is born to Ahinoam. Ahinoam, that's a hard one to say, Ahinoam, okay? And then Daniel is born to Abigail. 
Absalom to a lady named Maka, who is the daughter of a king, a Syrian king named Talmai, who is from Geshur. Okay, and you'll, you'll hear about that a little bit uh, later. And also Absalom has a sister, and what's her name? Okay, Tamar. Okay, and then you have Adonijah. How did you say that, Miss Evelyn? Okay. And then, uh, I don't know, even know if I can pronounce all of these, Shep- Shephathiah, who is from Abitai, Adonijah is from Haggith, uh, Ithrium from Egla, Shemua from Bathsheba, Shobab from Bathsheba, Nathan from Bathsheba, Solomon from Bathsheba, and then unnamed ones, Ibtar, Elishua, uh, there's Elephalet, there's actually two Elephalets, and then there's Noga, Nofeg, these guys have great names, right? Japhia, Elishama, Eli, Eliada, and then Eliphet, Eliphalet again, and then some unnamed sons. So in David's case, uh, the struggle that's here is kind of the seedbed of rivalries and incest. We're going to see that play out here. In uh, this, this story that we'll read in just a moment in chapter 13, you're going to hear you're going to hear Amnon, who begins to lust after his half-sister. You're going to hear him refer to her in one instance as Absalom's sister, and then in another instance when he's trying to manipulate things as his own sister. Okay, so just pay attention to those close details. He's trying to manipulate um, a plot in order to get her to come close where he can have intercourse with her. So, uh, But in David's case, the... Many wives uh, becomes the seedbed of family rivalries and incest. In Solomon's case, it became a full bloom in backsliding and idolatry. There was a wise old minister uh, that said uh, one time that what one generation does in moderation, the next will do in excess. Okay, So you, you compromise a little bit in one generation. The next generation sees that compromise and takes it up and feels freedom to go further. And so we have to be careful how it is that we live before the next generation. So we have, we have a, an oversight. I don't know how well David knows the law of the Lord. There's an uncertainty in this period that we do know that there are those that are talking about loving the law of the Lord. But Psalm uh, 119, I don't think is written by David. I think it's written by somebody else. But there's still a love for the law of God. But how, how much he knows it exactly, I don't know exactly. Because we're coming out of a period of the judges when nobody was really listening to the law of the Lord. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And David was trying to, to set things back right. But we don't get an indication till later that there's this massive revival of the word of God. Okay, And that comes during the time of uh, Josiah. So... I don't know what he knows, but he seems to, it seems to me he's overlooking Deuteronomy 17, 17, okay? So that might have been an oversight, but, but then uh, we have this blatant disregard for the law of God when he commits adultery with Bathsheba and kills her husband. Everybody should have known that was wrong, okay? David has no excuse uh, for, for this in particular, that he sees Bathsheba. I don't want to go through all of what happened. We talked about that last week. But um, he has adulterous relationships with her and then kills her husband. And because of this sin, I think David loses his moral authority over his family um, from those in his home. 
And it's hard to calculate the damage that's caused when children see hypocrisy in their parents. You can't calculate that. That's hard to, to estimate or anticipate what that will do within a family. Okay, so we see some things play out. And the next thing that we see here is that David doesn't get involved when he should have. Let's read chapter 13. Okay, we'll, we'll take some time to read through this. In the course of time, okay, can I point out the fact again, the chapter divisions are not there in the original Hebrew. Are, are you with me on that? What, what, is that, what does that mean for us? Sorry, Second uh, Samuel 13. Second Samuel 13. People aren't reading the Bible by chapter and verse like we are in the, in the Old Testament days. In fact, um, I, I don't think that we had chapter and verse until sometime around the 1500s. So that means the Greek New Testament, if you looked at it, it was written without spaces between words, in all caps. That had been hard to read. No verses, no chapter visions, just whatever the book was, whatever the letter was, all together, crunched together. And so when you memorized, and a lot of Jewish boys had the whole Old Testament memorized, word for word, all of it. The minor prophets, the major prophets, the law, the writings, all of it memorized. Well, how did they know where to go? Start them off on a phrase from anywhere in the Bible and they can finish it. Okay, so uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is that this is one continuous story. And so when it says in the course of time, what we need to understand there is this is pointing back to something that's happened previous to it, okay, in the course of time. So the thing that's prior to this is, uh, is David having been, having been uh, judged at Nathan's word. So now in the course of time... Ammon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon, do I say Ammon? It's Amnon. Amnon became so obsessed with her, with his sister, Tamar, that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and seemed impossible for him to do anything with her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. Shrewd, uh, in case we misunderstand that, that doesn't mean always calculating in the sense of devising evil schemes, although that is the case here. Shrewd typically means wise in the way of practical matters. Okay? So he's shrewd, a very shrewd man. And he asked Am- Amnon, uh, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Did you hear that? Not my sister. The, the narrator tells us it's his sister. But out of Amnon's mouth, he puts some distance there. Do you see that? It's important to catch that, those little details like that. Um, I'm in love with Tamar, my, brother's, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed, Jonadab said, and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and to give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister. Notice now it's switched. I would like my sister, this seems more innocent, my sister Tamar to come and to make some special bread in my sight so I may eat it from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house 
of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was uh, lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread uh, she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him, <coughs> took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than than she, uh, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And she was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment used, uh, excuse me, the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away weeping as she went. What a sad uh, order of events. How quickly that, that love, which was probably not love at all, is lust, turns to hatred. And we see her used and tossed out. And she goes to her brother Absalom. Her brother Absalom said to her in verse 20, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother's Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious, and Absalom never said a word to Amnon. Either good or bad, he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. So this is this begins this sword in the house of David that's uh, taking place that was prophesied by Nathan. Uh, and David uh, doesn't get involved in the way that he should. It tells us that he, he became angry, but we don't read anything else regarding that. And I need to say something here about, uh, about this is that we do we have a problem within David's house and uh, with his children. And I need to. I think I need to say tonight that sometimes uh, children of godly parents um, rebel against that and aren't godly. And sometimes children of ungodly parents turn to God with all their heart. And I don't know the reason for all of that. There are com- these are complicated issues. Um, and even two children from the same home can choose different courses. So uh, our college president, he was telling about. He grew up. His dad was a church planter back in the probably the 40s, in the Assemblies of God in Arkansas, and he planted lots of churches. And uh, Our Bible College president, of course, had pastored at that point and uh, been in ministry for like five decades. 
a long time in ministry. And his brother, what happened was uh, long after his brother had grown, he'd, he was uh, going to a church and uh, he found out, he'd gone over to the pastor's house, the parsonage often was right next door to the church and some of those little churches. And uh, he went over to the parsonage to check on something and uh, he happened to see uh, the pastor and here's what was going on. The pastor would have this evangelist once a year and uh, when they would come together during that time, the pastor and the evangelist would swap wives. And uh, of course, uh, this brother, of our college president, he saw that going on and he walked away from everything. He walked away from the church. He walked away from God. He said, I got no use for this. And we can almost understand that. You know, if you're looking at it a certain way, why would somebody do that? It wasn't a result of growing up in the home, but, but that also happens even within homes that you can have one child that grows up and wants to serve God with all their heart and another not. And maybe we see this in David's home. Why, why does, does this kind of thing happen and why did it happen here? And I think some of it has to do with the fact that David set a bad example uh, in his life. But another part of it may have to do with the judgment of God. But there seems to me, as I read through this passage, to be another element to this. Um, remember that this story is not just telling us the facts, that actually we're hearing it narrated to us with moral points involved. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? That not only are we hearing the story, but the narrator of this is not just telling us the base history. He's giving us, um, he's giving us a moral to all of this. And the thing that uh, he's showing here, and I, and I think I see through all of this, is that he shows David to be kind of detached from his children in a certain way. So it's not just that it's not just the base facts; it's narrated with a point to all of this. When I read through these stories, I'm hearing that while David was a great leader of men in battle, he was not a great leader in his family, and there were things that happened right under his nose. And you can see these in the stories. You read through this. This is If you read through chapter 13 through 15, you'll see this in this passage, I believe. Um, chapter 13, verse 7 and 8. Notice uh, that it was David was the one who sent Tamar to Amnon. Did you notice that? That somehow Amnon said, he, said, he convinced his dad, send Tamar. David let that happen. Now, we might just think, okay, that's one instance but as you read on down, you find in chapter 13, look at verse 25 with me, somewhere around 23. Remember how it says uh, that Absalom, he didn't say anything good or bad to his brother Amnon. All the while, he's calculating some kind of plan about how to get even with Amnon for raping his sister. And so then in chapter 13, verse 23, Two years later, when Absalom was uh, sheep shares were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's son to come. Absalom went to the king and he said, "Your servant uh, has had shears come. Will the king and his attendants please join me?" Verse twenty-five. No, my son. The king replied, "All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you." Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. And Absalom said, if not, let my brother Amnon come with us. And the king asked him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. And so he, David, sent him Amnon 
and the rest of his sons. You see that? So now David, I'm not saying that David has done this intentionally, but now we're seeing two things where it seems like there's negligence on his part. He sends he sends Tamar into a situation where she gets raped, and he sends Amnon to the shearing of the sheep where he's going to get killed. This is the narrator's telling us this. These are very uh, explicit things here, and you would think that that would be enough. But then later on in chapter 15, verse 9, when Absalom has killed his brother, he does. They, I won't read all of this, but he invites all the brothers to come to the sheep shearing, and they're going to celebrate and probably have some lamb. And then at the dinner, Absalom tells his guys, his um, cadre of guys, when uh, Amnon gets drunk, uh, lay hold of him and kill him. And they're like, should we do that? And he's like, just trust me, just do it. And they do. So they kill Amnon. And word gets back to David about it. And when uh, word gets back to David... Absalom goes into hiding. Where does he go into hiding? Anybody know? He goes to Gesher. Where have we heard Gesher already? Talmai is the king of Gesher. Talmai is his mother's father. So Absalom goes and hides out among his kin. Okay? So with all of this, David has sent him away, and now uh, as some time comes and he comes back, and we'll get into that in just a moment, and Absalom finally gets back to Jerusalem, there's a certain point in time where he's got it in his heart to rebel against his father and to go to war against him, and he asks his father, can I go to Hebron to worship the Lord? I made a vow that I would. And David sends him to Hebron, and from there, Absalom launches his rebellion against his father. And so in each of those instances, we get this picture that David is um, negligent and doesn't, isn't aware or wise enough to see that these things are unfolding under his eyes. And we might think, well, that's just a coincidence, or he's not necessarily a bad father because of that. But consider something else that happened. So after Absalom's been away a while, Joab says, and, and who is Joab in relationship to David, by the way? His nephew, right? Uh, Joab's mom is named Zeruiah, right? And that's David's sister. And so Joab and Abishai and Asahel, they're, they're David's nephews, okay? So all along, they're kind of in the background, and when it comes to uh, David's kids, those are, those are their cousins. And so Joab comes to David, or he, he concocts this scheme to get David to bring Absalom back. After, it tells us after a, a little bit of time that, uh, and I'm trying to find the verse here. I think it's verse 21. No? Sorry. There's a verse here that says, after uh, three years of Absalom being gone, David wanted to go to him because the time of his mourning was done and, and he longed to go see his son Absalom. But there was still a little bit of standoffishness with that. And so Joab concocts this scheme where he sends this lady, this wise lady, to come talk to David. Do you remember this part of the story? And this lady tells David a story. It's kind of reminiscent of when Dathan tells a story. I don't know if you've caught that. But he tells this story, she tells this story to David that she has two sons and one of them killed the other. Right? 
and uh, I only have two sons, and now people want to kill my other son, and if, I, if that happens, what will I have left? He'll, he's the apple of my eye. My husband is gone. And David sees through it this time. <laughs> he goes, is Joab behind all of this? And then she says something, and this is in verse uh, 20 of chapter 14. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in this land. Okay? He knows everything that happens in this land. Did he know that when he sent Tamar to go visit her brother that he was going to rape her? Did he know about when he sent Amnon to Absalom that he was going to kill him? And did he know that later on, this hasn't happened yet, but when he sends Absalom to Hebron, that he's going to rebel against him. He doesn't know that. And so I think the narrator here is trying to get us to see that David, in a sense, is being a foolish father. He doesn't know exactly what's going on with his kids. He might know everything that's going on in Israel, but he doesn't seem to know what's going on in his own house. And if we look at these facts, it seems to me as I read this story that in some ways he's an incompetent father. And I think there's a principle in that is that being a godly person does not automatically make a person a good parent. That there's, there's wise characteristics that need to go along with being a godly person. Doing any, you know, being a godly Christian doesn't make you good at your job automatically, right? It ought to make you honest. It ought to make you do the right thing. But there's a competence that has to come with wisdom being gained. And so the fact that he's a godly person, I think we see other examples of this in Scripture with Samuel and his sons. Uh, we see it with Jacob and his sons. Jacob's a godly man. It says at the, in Hebrews that at the end of his life, he worshiped the Lord and leaned upon his staff. But he had all kinds of dysfunction in his family, right? He played favorites. It's not a good thing. So there's all kinds of things that are taking place here. And I think this is an example of David perhaps not being a very good father. And maybe one of the reasons for that is that he feels that he's lost the moral high ground. When David found out about the rape of Tamar, the Bible says he was angry. This is 2 Samuel 13, 21. Um, what is, it that, what is uh, David's response to this? It just says that he became angry, but we're not told what he's angry about. Did you know that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Dead Sea Scrolls both have a longer scripture here? It says not only that he was angry in verse 21, but the longer reading is, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. I don't know if this is the right reading, which one's exactly right, but I do know that it leaves us with questions, the fact that it just says he was angry, but the Bible doesn't tell us he did anything with that. He doesn't reprimand his son. He doesn't censor his son. He doesn't seem to do anything related to that. Yes,
like he was kind of maybe blind to the to the failures of his kids or that they could ever have bad intentions in their heart. Yeah. Yeah, and he he's he was spared of God's judgment for murder. Maybe he's trying to not look like a hypocrite in judging his son. Yeah, maybe he thinks time will heal, but the way I understand she lived destitute is that me it seems to me she never got to marry. And that was typical in that culture. Dean? Yeah, and in fact, that was one of Absalom's campaign plots is to uh, tell people that he would give justice, real justice. My father doesn't give justice. Well, and, and those those are all good thoughts. I don't know. I'm I'm telling you, it seems to me as I read this passage that David appears to be a negligent father in some way because he won't confront his kids. He won't confront the problem. And I'm, I'm not a parent, so... But... Maybe there's some value in looking at it from a perspective. I'm not bringing any kind of experience of my own into this, but looking at it, it seems to me that David, as a, a father, he's not he's not confronting. He's not standing up to his kids and saying, you know, that's wrong. This sh- these things shouldn't have happened. They might have happened anyway because of the judgment of God. I don't know, but I the picture I get of David is he's just not he's not doing a very good job with his family at this point. So. I don't know how you feel, how you feel about that. Uh, one of the questions that comes up in this is, um, what is he angry about? Is he just angry and that's it? That's the shorter reading. Or is who's he angry at? Is he angry at uh, Amnon or Absalom or Tamar or himself? And why does uh, he take no swift, decisive action against Amnon when Amnon rapes his sister, or against Absalom when Absalom kills his brother? Is it only because he's soft-hearted and sentimental, allowing love for somebody to outweigh justice? Just as Absalom allowed love to outweigh decency and morality? Is he disqualified from being firmly disciplinarian by virtue of his own track record? Like, he hasn't been, <laughs> hasn't been just and done the right thing, and maybe he feels that he can't. Or is it that David, hoping that time will heal all wounds, doesn't want to take any action that will make the family situation worse. I don't know which one it is, but it seems to me that he doesn't get involved the way that he should have. And I, I think there is a lesson for us on all levels. Maybe not just a parenting lesson, but there are times that we need to get involved. And we, when we don't, the problem gets worse, you know? And so this is kind of what I, I take from reading this passage and then a last thing here, I'd like to draw from a, a few other things. So we have the the murder of Amnon, and then Absalom goes into hiding. Chapter 14, verse 1 through 22, is, is Joab and David, and 
this ruse that comes up that's kind of like Nathan's where this woman comes in with her story. David is persuaded, uh, but he's not manipulated in this. Okay, Joab's behind this. This is in verses 13 through 22 of chapter 14. Joab's behind bringing this woman in. Uh, I know that, but maybe it is time to bring Absalom back. And then in verses 23 through 33, Absalom returns to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 15, if you want to turn there, I'm just going to highlight some things that happen in this chapter. Verses 1 through 12 um, could be called how to win friends and influence people because that's what Absalom does. I, I mean, there's nothing new in politics, Okay, I want to tell you, you can see it right here. Just just uh, look at what he does. In verse 1 of chapter 15, in the course of time, once again, it's bringing the story along. Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. What's he doing there? He, self-promoting? What's that, Dean? Okay, yeah. Building prestige, right? Look at... Look how important I am. Uh, chariots were something that were not very practical in Jerusalem because of the hills. Did you know that? So chariot warfare wasn't great in Jerusalem. You, you get in the plains like in Je- the Jezreel Valley, then you can use chariots. But around Jerusalem, I mean, what are you going to do? Ride those chariots up the Kidron Valley? and I don't. It doesn't make sense. But he's got chariots because he wants to look important, not because they're necessary. Okay? So he's building his prestige. The second thing... He does in verses 2 and 3. See if you can tell what's happening there. What, what does he do there, Absalom? Yeah, he's doing, that's, what's he do, what's he do on a practical, like the little things that he does? He gets up early, <laughs> okay. If you're going to take over the throne, you've got to get up early in the morning to beat a guy like Dave. Kissing babies, and he wants to be everybody's friend. Okay? He, he listens to people, and he makes promises. What do you, what's, your, what's, what's your story? And you know what? I can do something about that. It's, uh, it's as old as politics, Right? And then um, he sows discord in verse 4. Look at what it says there. And, and this is the way the enemy works, and this is also the way churches are torn apart. Do you know, sometimes by listening to something, you can give credence to it. A rumor or di- discord being sown by listening, it's almost like people think you're being sympathetic to that. And this is, this is what uh, Absalom does. Uh, by the way, anybody know what Absalom's name means? <laughs> Good hair, <laughs> if only. Yeah, yeah, father of peace. Isn't that ironic? Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know if it takes total disorder for uh, a wedge to get in. There may have been a little bit of disorder, but it's easy for people to feel discontent even when things are okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. David lives on the side of mercy. You can see that a little bit in how he deals with things like Joab and uh, some of his other, like Shammai. He lets them live. But then when Solomon comes to the throne, he tells Solomon, you need to get rid of those sons of Zeruiah, they're trouble. And so Solomon, although he's, he means, uh, what is it, son of peace? What does Solomon mean? I can't remember, but it includes peace once again. Um, he... Uh, starts off with a lot of bloodshed, <laughs> and then it becomes peaceful. But as far as the priesthood, they're in place at this point. But as far as enforcing the law, they can't enforce it. They probably proclaim it, and they enact it. In other words, they do all the things that are required in the ceremonial law. But David is supposed to be the judge of Israel. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think David mostly had peace, except for the problems in his house, and that was a result of his own, his own, I think, bad example and God's judgment for it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think... Uh, I think probably even if David had, sometimes a bad example once set is hard to get away from, unfortunately. I don't know. Yeah, he did. It seems to me that that's there. It's not talked about a lot, but I think that's there. So... Right. Yeah, there's forgiveness, still consequences of of action. So that's a okay. Peace. Let's just go with peaceful because that's that's easy. But it is kind of interesting that he starts off with bloodshed, and maybe it is part of it. Sometimes we've got to, with ruthless abandon, we need to take care of problems so that we can have true peace. So. Um, this last thing here, um, and we'll, we'll have to go quick through this, this final point, but notice that Absalom um, feigned French. Well, he, he sowed discord in verse 4. Look at verse 4 of chapter 15. It says there, and Absalom would add when he's greeting people, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has, compl- has a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that they receive justice. <laughs> if only he knew how hard it was, and probably he did, to keep everybody happy. He just can't. And so it's easy to it's easier to be a critic than it is actually to do the job. And so he's complaining and sowing discord. If only I were king. And then he feigned friendship. Notice how he did that. Verse 5 says, Also, whenever anyone would approach him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out to his hand and take hold of him and kiss him like he's real close with everybody. 
pretending to be everybody's friend. These are political moves, and he does it. David flees, and, uh, well, first we see Absalom establish a group of soldiers around him in 2 Samuel 15, 6. Uh, we get a summary statement. Look at what it says there. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king, asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And then we hear of David fleeing in verses 13 through 16. Um, Somebody comes along and says something to David. What do they say? Do you remember that statement that sends him him, uh, fleeing? Yep. The heart of the people are with Absalom. There's some really cool things in chapter 15 we can't get to, but I want to point I want to point them out. We won't be able to read all of them. You'll remember that when he leaves, uh, the priest wants to bring the ark with David, and David meets him and says, "No, keep the ark in Jerusalem," because uh, he says in verse, uh, let's see, that's verse 15. We can read that. Verse 15 says. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord chooses. That's not right. 15 verse, maybe it's 25. It is 25. Sorry about that. Then the king said to Zadok, who brought the ark out, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. I'd like you to notice David's attitude in, in these moments of, le- of leaving is submission to whatever the will of God is. And he's, he's like put himself into God's hands completely. And I think there's a beautiful trust about that. that he's, he knows he's failed God. He knows there are consequences. But at this point, he's not like Saul who says, I don't care if the Lord says I'm done. Saul says, I'm going to fight for my kingdom to the bitter end. David says in a different way, I entrust my life to God because this is God's kingdom, not mine. And so if he wants to give it to another, then that's his prerogative. And if he's done with me, so be it. But I trust my life to him. Keep the ark here. This, the whole religion of Israel is not about me. The whole kingdom of Israel is not about me. And so he entrusts himself to the hands of God. He finds out who his friends and enemies are on this departure. And, uh, and David has already received the promise of an eternal house, and so that's really important that you understand that he knows that he's been told in chapter 7. We're going to come to that later. We haven't dealt with that yet, but we need to know that this has already been said at this point in the story, that I will build a house out of you, a dynasty out of you. Okay? So one of your descendants, through your descendants, there will be a perpetual dynasty. So I want you to put yourself in David's shoes, not knowing the rest of the story, any of his sons could fulfill that at this point, and he could be done. Do you see that? Like He doesn't need to have any more sons for that promise to be fulfilled. And so this could be the end for David. And yet, he so entrusted himself to the hands of God that he says, if this is what God wants, then I trust him for that. There's a beautiful description of that in the book by, um, and now I can't think of it, the Tale of Three Kings is the book. talks about that kind of abandon before the Lord. And then we have a statement of trust in chapter 16, verse 10 through 12. This is when Shem- Shemai 
uh, comes and throws rocks and curses David. And one of uh, Abishai wants to go and cut his head off. Verse 10, the king said, um, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? It sounds a little bit like when Jesus confronts James and John, sons of thunder. Like, what spirit are you of? Remember? What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? And then David said to Abishai and his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Uh, it may be that the Lord will look upon his misery and restore to me, upon my misery, excuse me, and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of this curse today. And so then they continue along. So there's kind of a trust in all of this. There's an interesting story with one of David's advisors and one of his mighty men named Ahithophel. There's some reasons to believe that Ahithophel might actually be Bathsheba's grandfather. Okay, so that's a possibility here. And Ahithophel was one of David's advisors, and he goes over to Absalom's side and advises Absalom. And the Bible tells us in one verse in these passages that when Ahithophel gave advice, that both David and Absalom considered it as being wisdom from God. So if you remember the, I'm out of time, but if you remember the um, advice Ahithophel gave, he said to Absalom, go and sleep with David's harem in chapter 16, verse 21. And uh, he, in verse 23 of chapter 16, it says that he's almost prophetic in his advice that he gives. And then he tells Absalom, pursue David and kill him and let everybody else go. And what Absalom does, he listens to the advice of Hushai, another guy. And Ahithophel is so offended by that and hurt by that that he goes home and takes care of his affairs and then he takes his own life. You remember that? A sad story because he was a great advisor to um, David. Well, it's not long after that in chapter 18, um, Absalom and his men are fighting with David and his men. He's riding along through the thickets. And as Dean mentioned, you'll, you'll hear a description. I think it's in chapter 13 of Absalom that there was nobody more handsome than him. He had long flowing black hair and he cut it once a year and it was really weighty. Right? Good summary. So he's riding through the thickets and his hair gets entangled in the brush and he's suspended in midair. And they come upon him, David's army. They find him there. They tell Joab, the king has already said, if you find young Absalom, treat him kindly. Joab, sneaky as he was, like if you're talking about uh, one who is shrewd in a negative way, that's Joab. And Joab finds him and throws his javelin and pierces his heart. And the other men jump upon him and they kill him. And David, when he hears uh, hears about it, uh, he, he mourns, Absalom, Absalom, I would that it were me instead of you. What's the worst loss that you can have in life? Is it your own life? I don't think so. F.W. Borum said that the greatest uh, loss that a person can have is the loss of a child. And David said, oh, that it were me rather than you. That it were me rather than you. Like this is the worst thing he thought could happen. Perhaps he's, he's living down the consequences of his own sin. 
David finally finds his way back to Jerusalem, and uh, he's restored to his throne. But there's a great price that's paid upon his family for what he went through. And, and I would encourage us that when we act, we never act only to ourselves. Do you know that? That every, every action we have has consequences on others. And those things need to be taken into consideration. It may not just be for one generation, but for several. And I think we have influence over what happens in the next generation. We need to be careful that we make wise decisions and follow the Lord with all of our heart. Amen? Amen. I'm out of time. Three minutes past. Let's stand. Let's, uh, let's give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and His mercy. And thank the Lord that uh, to anyone who turns to the Lord with all their heart, there is forgiveness. And I want to pray for you if you're a parent today. Father, thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy to us that shows us kindness that we don't deserve. And how, um, Lord, you showed your kindness and your mercy to David. And even if we see some neglect in his, um, his fathering tactics, Lord, we pray that we could learn those lessons and, and see where there's a failure. And... Uh, Make a change in our lives. I pray for moms and dads who are trying to raise their children to follow you in a world that's gone crazy and has lost its moral center, has no regard for biblical ethics or any fear of God. I just pray, Lord, you help them to have wisdom to know how to get involved and to protect their children and not only protect them, but to give them the keys to live a godly and a wise life in a world that isn't following you. So that when they do go out in the world, they're not naive, but prepared to respond to it in a godly way. And I just pray, Lord, that you would raise up uh, godly and wise parents and grandparents. And uh, we pray, Lord, for those children that are wayward, that have known the truth and been raised in the right way, but are not, as of yet, choosing to serve you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help there not be condemnation if uh, the enemy would like to come and to sow some kind of seed of doubt about what might have been done differently. And Lord, if there's no perfect parent, we know that you're the only perfect parent, but God, there's been parents who have wisely and persistently sowed good seed, and we pray that you would bring that about and bring that to fruition and help their children, help children to know who you are as Lord and Savior, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.